Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of James Gray's new film, The Lost City of Z, which tells the incredible true story of Colonel Percival Fawcett, a British explorer who discovers evidence of an advanced civilization deep in the Amazonian jungle in the early 20th century. Though ridiculed by the scientific establishment, Fawcett and his followers return time and time again to the jungle in an attempt to prove his case. In addition to The Lost City of Z, Mr. Gray's credits include the feature film Little Odessa, an episode of the television series The Red Road, and the short film Cowboys and Angels. He earned four Palme d'Or nominations at the Cannes Film Festival for feature films The Yards in 2000, We Own the Night in 2007, Two Lovers in 2008, and The Immigrant in 2013. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Gray spoke with fellow director Matt Reeves about filming The Lost City of Z. During their conversation, Mr. Gray discusses the problems he faced while shooting the World War I scenes, which included mud, rats, and lots of rain, reminisces about making spaghetti for the entire crew to help alleviate the difficulties of the month-and-a-half-long shoot in the Amazonian jungle, and explains his mindset as a director, that he doesn't want what's in his head. Instead, he wants something better. Hello. Hello. So, I've known James for... A thousand years. Like a thousand years. We're friends literally since uh, college. And so, um, it's one of my closest, dearest friends. And um, I love this movie, I have to tell Why, you. Why, thank you. And um, But the thing about it is, which I find so interesting, I find it very... I, w I was very moved by it. I found it surprisingly tender and um, in a kind of movie you wouldn't think that that was going to happen. The scene between him and his son near the end of the film and what happens with Sienna Miller at the end of the movie I just think is so beautiful. And yet this is a story that didn't obviously initially emanate from you. It's a book. So I wonder if you could talk about, you're obviously, everything you have made has been imbued with an essence of you, having known you all this time. Um, and here is a story that, for whatever reason, you gravitated toward and found your way in, and yet you come through, from my perspective, someone who knows you for many years, very powerfully. And I wonder if you could talk about that, how you came to the project and how you made it personal and, and what you drew from the book and what, you know, how, you, how you sort of adapted that. Well, thank you. This is not an objective viewer, as you might observe. Um, I, had, I was sent the book in uh, late 2008, uh, and it had not been published yet. I had been sent it in galley's form, and I read it. And I have no 
one of the weirdest phone calls you'll ever get, by the way, which basically Brad Pitt called me up and said, uh, Jimmy Jam, uh, got this book. Uh, let's do it, man. Which, by the way, is totally accurate. That's exactly what he said. And so I, I have no idea why they sent it to me, because to your point, it, it doesn't resemble anything that I had done before. I had never basically been west of the East River, so, you know, let alone Amazonia. But I read it, and one thing stuck out to me, which is a very small passage of the book. This is a long way of answering your question, which is that in the book, it says Fawcett's father was uh, equerry to Edward VII, Prince Edward, before, before he became Edward VII, and that the, he traveled in rarefied social circles. And what happened was he was drunk and a gambler, and he had destroyed not one, but two family fortunes, which I'm not sure even how that's possible, but he managed to achieve it in any event, and had humiliated the family. And I kept reading, oh, he goes to Amazonia, there's World War I, all that stuff. And, you know, the strangest things that connect you to a piece of material or to an idea or a thought, and it's not even something you necessarily can verbalize. But I related very directly and very specifically to this idea of humiliation and to this need to prove himself and to conquer what he thought were really the, his father's demons. And that sat with me very personally and powerfully and that the idea that he then brought his son to the jungle also was very powerful to me that in some sense it was both his greatness and his folly and that the sins of his father had somehow been visited on his son. I don't know how you get more elemental and powerful than that. So when I started uh, working, I, I, but it is a solitary endeavor when you start the writing process. There's no other way around it. And then, of course, what, what we do here in the DGA is not. It's a collaborative medium. It totally is. But in the writing process, you, it's all about finding out who you are at that moment in your life and what it is you want to express. I mean, you know this. So the best, and I, I, I don't mean to get sententious, but the best quote I ever heard on really on anything that you want to try and do, if dare I use the word art, in an artistic endeavor, um, is Edward Hopper. He once, he was asked, he had his first retrospective. This was, I think, 1933, a very good year for the country. Uh, and somebody had asked him about, you know, are you painting, you're trying to convey the Great Depression, are you trying to convey loneliness, all these questions. And then he, he basically said, my only ambition uh, is the most exact transcription possible of my most intimate impressions of nature. And the reporter basically didn't have anything else to say after that, because what can you add? So in a sense, if you think of it that way, what are your most intimate impressions? What is it that moves you? What is it that you're concerned with? What is it that means something to you? Now, this doesn't mean autobiographical. I'm not, I'm not an Englishman, not 1905. You know, I'm a neurotic Jew from, from Queens. And that's a very different thing autobiographically, but not personally. I, I empathized directly with his catastrophe. So I suppose that's a very pretentious and long-winded way of answering a very good, straightforward take, question. Was that take, or I wouldn't say take, were those, because I haven't read the book, 
were those aspects of, of the book that Grant was writing? Was it, or, or was it that that you that you, as you were taking from the history, as you took it in from the book, that you connected to something that then you sort of really took off into another? It, it place? was very little of the book, Matt. I mean, I, the, a lot of the half the book is David Grant walking around the jungle, like trying to find Fawcett's footsteps. By the way, the book is excellent. I'm not bad mouthing the book at all. It's great, and Grant is fantastic. I mean, he is this guy, David Grant who's not only a lovely person, writes the best articles in The New Yorker. I don't know if you if you get a chance, you should read them. They're spectacular. And this book is great and brilliantly researched. But, you know, you're not making a documentary. And this is a narrative feature for a reason. You, you, you find that you have to and you should take liberties because what you're after, in a sense, is a greater truth and, frankly, your own truth. That's the whole point of the endeavor, is to find a way to express yourself in in another in a in a way that is, you know, the best again again the sententiousness and pretentious, but it's it's, it's again another quote, uh, one more, the last one for the night, I promise. But it's so great, and I've repeated it over and over to myself. Which George Eliot wrote, she said, "The purpose of all art is the extension of our sympathies," which is awesome, I think. So if you look at it that way, I find that the the book has in it that essence, but it's not it's not the major part of the book. The book goes on about his you know discoveries and frankly that he was considerably more racist and also uh a very tortured person toward the end, especially because of the war and what the war had done to him i just I wanted to communicate something else, and I felt that I felt that uh as a narrative feature director at least loosely called one. I had the right to do that. And by the way, I, I'm sure I'm right. Because you don't go, well, thank you. You're the one. Uh, well, I mean, but, but, I, but here's the thing. I, I, you know, I, I, and I, I, I'm a huge movie fan, as are you, and we always see these things like, that was not accurate. That's not exactly what happened. I'm sorry. And you're like, dude, do you go to the Globe Theater? Are you the guy at the Globe Theater who was like booing Richard Burbage when he was doing Richard the, Richard the Third? That's not exactly what happened with Richard. That's not what he, he was not a hunchback. He had scoliosis. Like, dude, give it up. So I feel like um, our whole, the whole point of what we do, I think, is to try and put ourselves into the material and to give of ourselves, frankly, and make ourselves as vulnerable as possible for the film. Now, whether the audience gets that, that's a whole other issue. But that's not, that's, uh, we've done our job if we've done that, I think. I mean, it's like Raging Bull. You don't watch that movie and go, the character of Joey didn't actually exist. It's a composite between his manager, his brother, and which is true, right? It's, not, it's a composite character. But you look at that movie, and part of why we revere it, and I think correctly so, obviously, is that Scorsese's anguish, his self-destruction at that point in his life, is on every frame of that film. I, I think that that's the kind of thing that we should aspire to, you know? So, anyway. And, and the film seemed to be a lot about, um, for me, in watching it, the sacrifice of pursuing your ambitions and the cost, the personal cost, uh, oh, absolutely. On, a, um, on, a, on an interpersonal level. I mean, the relationship, the stuff that, the surprise for me in watching the movie, would, you know, though, you know, we had talked about it as you were writing it, but then to really see it, um, was the cost on the family and how much that resonated for me. I mean, I was very, very moved by that stuff. Well, isn't that's our lives, right? If we're lucky. 
if we're lucky. We go and we make a film, we go off for a year or two years or whatever, we become obsessed, we become idiotic, we make no sense. If we're lucky enough to have a wonderful wife and beautiful children at home, uh, is that the cost? That is something that, I mean, I'm much more fortunate than Percy Fawcett on many levels, not least of which is that my wonderful wife and children come with me to the jungle, which is a whole How other story, by the way. <laughs> but uh, it's still, it does, even though they're with you physically, though, the obsession takes you over, and, and do you spend enough time acknowledging the other person because and the other people? Because the most important thing we can do is acknowledge the other person's humanity of someone that we love, right? The worst thing you can do is say, shut up, because that's closing the door. So, of course, you worry about that, and I tried to personalize that as well, and to say, if this guy, you know, the, the script was by nature going to be episodic, how could it not be? But I tried to think, okay, well, maybe there's a weapon there, because what you can do is, if it's episodic, it is how he would have perceived his own life, and they would have perceived him. He would have gone, he went off for two years, came back and went, oh, is this my daughter? Very nice little girl. And then they would not see him for two years, and then he would go off to the, the, you know, the trenches. And would he ever come back? Who knows? And it was in these chunks. So that was my way of trying to come at it from, again, a personal angle. And, and what was the experience of, the, what is the budget of, of the film? We got twenty-three million to make it, and then Which with like insane. tax reba rebate stuff, I think it wound up being something I mean, like looks, twenty-nine. It looks huge. It must have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, it was very nice, very pleasant shoot. Uh, <laughs> Can you describe what that experience was like? Well, I mean, it I must mean, have been unlike anything you've ever made. Yeah, it was insanity. It was insanity. I mean, here's the thing: you, when I, I'm sure it's the same for you when you're writing a script. You, you, writing, writing. Uh, no, when you're writing, we are in the directors' guild. You know, um, I just came from the writers' guild, and they liked me a lot. Um, some jokes are just for me. Uh, I'm writing, I don't ever think of the logistics. You just, you have to let your creativity in some way not be hindered by budget and things like that. <laughs> I remember giving you the script. I, I gave him the script, which I always do before I shoot a movie. I said, man, what do you think of this? And because he's totally honest with me, yeah, that doesn't work or whatever about something. And he read it and he went, yeah, yeah, so I read it. Yeah. Why? Why would? Why would you want to make this? Why? Why would you want to do this? What do you mean? I didn't gonna, say that. You did. You said. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about what the movie is, but you're gonna go down there. You're gonna do that. And I was like, well, maybe I. Maybe that is dumb. Actually, now that I think about it, what the hell did I just do? So anyway, after I think in my mind, I had visions of um, one of my favorite uh, movies is The Hearts of Darkness. Uh, documentary about the it making of apocalypse. It wasn't far away from that. And I thought, is this what you are it about to? It wasn't far away from Especially that. knowing Ali and the family. I'm just thinking, what are you doing? Well, what you do is you. Well, here's the thing: the first half of the, not half, the first forty percent was the United Kingdom, and I had been lulled into a false sense, not of security, because it's always horrible, right? Let's be honest: making movies very difficult, and it has only become more difficult, frankly, since the 1930s for a variety of reasons. Why is that funny? I don't know. Why is that funny? I literally don't know. Uh, well, in the 1930s, they shot on the back lot, and they could reshoot and all this stuff, and now we're in Amazonia, you know, with, uh, with Dolby Sound to pick up uh, every weird howler monkey that ruins a line of dialogue. I mean, it's a very different, more difficult endeavor. I love that they're laughing. It's great. Um, 
so the first 40 percent of the shoot, it was very very difficult and grueling. But it was just the, uh, making a movie and kind of grinding it out. And it was horrible and all that. How and many days were you there in, th in that, that part? 27 days. I think it was six six weeks total. Uh, total the whole movie? In, no, no. Total in the UK. Total it was UK. 20, 25 days. Then th 25 days, which was five weeks. Then the sixth week was the war. And that was awful. That, the war was one week. That was awful. Wow. That was a week of absolute misery. And I thought... The jungle can't be as bad as this. <laughs> we had dug the trenches, and I had read this memoir of a great writer named Robert Graves called Goodbye to All That, which is fantastic if you've ever read it. And uh, he talks about the trenches. And the uh, English and the Germans were 30 yards away from each other, which is nothing. And they would talk to each other. And anyway, the trenches themselves were three and a half feet wide and all that. And so my cinematographer and I had looked at uh, Pads of Glory. And there's not, actually a shockingly small amount of World War I movies. Mm -hmm. There's Pads of Glory. There's, of course, Wings, which is not about this. Um, there's a few others. Uh, I'm, uh, and there's a great, great silent film by Frank Borzaghi called Seventh Heaven, which is a masterpiece, if you don't know it. Uh, all the Quiet on the Western Front, but not a lot. But all of them, all of them had very wide trenches, and it's obvious you got the Mitchell BNC yeah. camera to get through and all that. So I, being an asshole, said, I, "It's going to have to exactly the, uh, the 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 real width." Of the, and then you get there, and it's the real width, and you go, "Well, what do you what'd you do this for? You we can't go through here." And my French, wonderful French loopy production designer, who's a great guy, he said. Yeah, but you ask for me, you said exactly as always that you wanted. Just three and a half feet. That's what it was. I'm like, yeah, but we can't get the camera through here. Yeah, but you asked that for me. That's what you wanted. <laughs> and he just sort of went like this and walked away. And then the rain came and the mud came and the rats came because we, you know, the crew leaves some food around. And so then it's rain and rats and mud. And you have two, two or three feet of mud and you're standing in it for 10 seconds to talk to someone on a camera position and to get up and walk to the other side. You get stuck and you fall flat on your face in the mud, which, by the way, is a great metaphor for the whole experience. But... <laughs> So I, I, I spent a week in this, and it was awful. And I thought, the jungle can't possibly be like this. But it was, the jungle turned out to be significantly worse in all respects. <laughs> the, I went down there, and for the first two weeks, I, I will say this, for the first two weeks, it was awful. It was like a bajillion degrees. And I was there, but I, but I had this feeling, you know, Matt, I was like, I'm doing it, I'm here, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to that jungle and bugs and bugs that's now really that thing. was there yeah. the bugs the snakes all that crap 100 degrees 100 percent humidity but i was trying to be a man we were staying in a compound that looked like jonestown and the, you know and it, it was uh i mean, in the middle of nowhere on the don diego river you know i was like i i did i did when i remember landing and thinking you got off the plane and i thought all right it was my dream to make films francis ford coppola is our hero i'm gonna fucking do it and then you think, wait a minute, that fucking killed him. What am I doing? <laughs> and um, so that was the first two weeks I thought I was the man. Not, not in the quality of work. I was, of course, you know, I was fraught and filled with doubt. But in terms of, like, I was, I was at least doing it. And then week three comes and week four comes and week five comes and week six comes. And, we and then, uh, you know, a, a madness does set in. I mean, you can't help it because there's nothing to do. And there's no phones or you know, uh, in internet or all that. So 
you know, every day is the same. You wake up at 4.30, I put my glasses on, they're all steamed, it's so humid. We would take this crappy little Nissan van, <laughs> five o'clock, it's dark, you know. You go down to the banks of the river, you get on those rafts, which you see in the movie, which were built by the, the local uh, people in the, uh, who lived on the Don Diego River. In, it's indigenous people lived on wow. the Don Diego. They built those rafts, they're called batalons, and they did it brilliantly. And you would take, you'd go on the rafts, you'd either go up the river, or down the river, and if you were shooting on the river that day, that's where you stayed or you beached the, rip, the raft at some place in the river and then you went up into the jungle, half a mile or whatever. And that sameness is what actually was very hard. And the sameness- Did it have an the, effect on the, on the casting No, crew? of course. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of the stuff, you know, there's this stuff with Charlie and Rob on the raft at the end of trip one where they're kind of just zoning out. And that's just me not telling them I'm rolling. That's just them sitting there like that. <laughs> uh, I, Seriously? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, you can see it on their faces. Disturbing. I mean, they're like dying. They, they, first of all, the thing is also, there is, and the thing is, the 80th straight meal of yucca is like, like, like so I, I did something totally spoiled. It was a very long drive to Barranquilla, which is a fairly major city. So I had my assistant do something very important. She was wonderful, but I didn't need her on the river. So I said, here's what you do. You're going to get a car, and you're going to drive to Barranquilla. This was after week two. I said, you are going to spend all of the money that I give you on all of the cans of tomatoes, olive oil, and dried pasta that you can find in the city of Barranquilla, and you are going to bring it back. Yes, James. It's like a 10-hour drive to Barranquilla. <laughs> she goes to Barranquilla. She comes back with 50 cans of San Marzano plum tomatoes. I don't know how she found them, and a huge amount of dried pasta. And every night after that, I made spaghetti and tomato sauce for the whole crew. And it was wonderful as a way of bonding, but it was also, let's face it, excellent for uh, the punctiliousness of the crew in the morning uh, for a variety of biological reasons I won't go into. And to make all of this sound ever more appetizing, um, we, we did have our encounters with various types of vermin, bugs, spiders, and things. And in the end, uh, the two people in the AD department got dengue fever, which Whoa. is not a pleasant thing to get. And the boat captain got malaria. Wow. So, I mean, that's no joke. And the, the, the second to last night, um, one of the grips was bitten by a viper. That, that, that fire scene where they, they bring, at the end of the movie where they get brought down to the river and had to be uh, airlifted out. So it was, not a, it was not an easy experience to deal with, as you can imagine. Although I, I said to my wife when we got back, oh, Ali, had, my wife, had taken the kids back home a little bit early because they had school, and also they had had enough. And I was by myself for several weeks. I, by, by the way, I came back. It was in, I didn't shave at all. I know you sent me a picture. It was, it's, it was quite something. It's an astonishment, really. It really is. I looked like Moses repurposed as a beekeeper. Because, you know, you have to wear that crap in the jungle. I mean, you don't, can't get bitten. And um, I, there is a point to this. I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, at the end of the shoot, I, just, I, I, I came back and uh, 
I had some kind of weird, I, I mean, I suppose this is a form of PTSD, really. When I got into the editing room, I didn't, I could not cut the Columbia stuff. Really? I had, the UK stuff was like, you know, I, I could manage it. And then I, I said, John, the editor, I said, let's put the Columbia stuff away for a little while. And moved on to the other scenes in England. I don't know why, I don't know what it was, but it was a very, um, you know, it's a haunting experience going down there. And somebody, I, somebody said to me, uh, is there going to be a part B? I said, what? A part B. A part B to what? Medicaid? What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean a part B? There's no fucking part B. You go do a part B. <laughs> but now, you know, it's weird. We don't remember. Now you're going to do pain. a sequel. Yeah, I yeah. do a sequel. No, you don't remember the pain, really. Like, you don't remember that. Now I think of it as a wonderful adventure. So, and the, and the experience with the indigenous tribes of the Putumayo region, which is where they came from, was amazing. And my children, they're never going to have that experience again, so that was a remarkable thing. And then, <clears throat> visually, you know, you're the, there are things in it that, how do you, how do you repair, vis like, cause I know in the past you used to draw, not draw, you used to paint these yeah. watercolors. Yeah. And um, this film, I think, is tremendous visually. And there are moments, I mean, that remind me of, like, that shot, of his daughter running after them. Uh, oh, right, right. Is, waving to them, yeah. I mean, incredible. Uh, very John Ford, I thought, or something. Oh, he was a major influence. Yeah. So, I mean, what were the, what would you say, what kind of things did you think about or did you not think about any of that? Well, or? I, I, I did, you know, obviously the John Ford thing, you know, the girl waving and uh, the last third of the movie I'd wanted to By the to way, feel. just even the lighting and that, like the way the, the weather was in that, the, the landscape behind right. them. Yeah, was that's astonishing. Yeah, in well, that that's moment. that's that's you can thank Northern Ireland for that. The skies are incredible there, but that's a very interesting. That whole scene where they basically say goodbye. Yeah. We had five cameras, mm. and I knew that I had a twenty-five minute period where the light was going to be like that, and no more really than that. And basically, I mapped out the five camera positions at midday. And we waited until that happened. I had, we had all the camera positions. And um, there's very little paint out. But the, we had to paint out a, one or two of the shots. I had a little bit of, you know, you see the other camera crew, but not much. And uh, I must say, it, it, you know, you only get basically two takes per, per thing. But I felt it was important to communicate a, a poetic quality that I wanted to take hold in the last third of the film. Mm. And so it was part of what the movie meant. It wasn't just... I didn't think it wasn't just as beauty, you know. Oh, sure. So we did that all that whole scene where he says goodbye and the car drives off and she waves. That was shot in 25 minutes with wow. five cameras. <laughs> but you can see it. I mean, it's all consistent in the sure. weather and all that. We could never have done it over a day or two, and that has to do. But so much of what I think is powerful in movies is this, you know, I'll tell you a very formative experience and it really, I'm sure many of you have seen this movie, so forgive the condescension if it comes off that way. I don't mean it that way, but when I was 16, uh, the movie Ron came out and I remember I had never seen a Kurosawa movie before that. No, 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 that's not true. I had seen Seven Samurai and loved it, but Ron is a very different kind of movie. It's a much more austere film than Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai almost has a kind of almost, and I don't mean to insult it, it's the greatest thing ever, um, but it has a much more quicksilver, almost bubblegum feel to it in a great way. Mm -hmm. Ron is very much an old man's movie, very much an austere film, 
And I remember seeing the film. I was 16 years old. Came out in 1985 at the Cinema One on 59th Street near Bloomingdale's. And uh, I cut school to go see it. And I was in awe of it. And I kept thinking, the one word I kept thinking was, man, that is cosmic. Felt cosmic. Mm-hmm. Seeing Nakadai come out of that castle on fire, it felt like, oh, he's using the elements. And that music, too. And music, yeah. the Mahler-esque score um, by Takamitsu. And I thought, this is like conjuring God or something. Mm. He was a, the man was such a genius. And so I always tried to say to Darius, the kanji, the cinematographer, Darius kanji, I said, we have to try and get in the cosmic, the cosmic. So Kurosawa was one, but John Ford is the man who summons the cosmic. And it's very unfashionable to rip him off. So, of course, that means I want to try and rip him off. But we didn't, we didn't watch movies really right. at all. We wound up you looking at paintings. You didn't do the paintings, paintings or anything this Well, time. I stopped doing that because I did it on the first two movies. I would do watercolors, you know, for each scene. I would do one for each scene. So by the end of the pre-production, I'd have about 60. But I found it was very unhelpful because the cinematographers would be so connected to the watercolor. And I don't want what is in my mind. Mm-hmm. I want something better. Uh, it's not their job to give me exactly what I want. And uh, I don't know how you guys feel. It's a room full of directors. But my own view is that if if I get my vision on the screen, I have really fucked up. Because the, I'm not the cinematographer for a reason, right? Darius Kanji is an artist. He's, I'm going to say to him, Darius, this is what I dream of. This is what I want. And he says, oh, yeah, I see that. Well, okay. And then let's try this and that. By the way, it's a perfect imitation. <laughs> And uh, then he brings something else, as the editor should and as the composer should and all those other forces to help you realize something that expands the original scope of your idea. And that, to me, is the best part of directing. It's like if you're a com- conductor, right? Like, like the best conductor ever, or at least that we know of, is a man named Carlos Kleiber. And Carlos Kleiber, if you ever hear his Beethoven recordings, which are the best Beethoven recordings, particularly the fifth by Carlos Kleiber. He's a very strange man, Carlos Kleiber. He died in the early 90s, I believe. And he was like, he rejected the whole notion of conducting as an art form, or as a celebrity art form, and he kind of lived like a like a bum, and he would open his fridge and he'd say, well, I don't have any more mayo, I, I guess I gotta conduct again. And then he would go and book some you know, appearances conducting, and then he would give the greatest performance of all time. Gave no interviews, and you're thinking, what's the point? Well, Kleiber always felt that if the conductor, it's the, the conductor is not playing the instruments. The conductor's job is to summon the magnificence of others. And if you see directing in that same way, which I think is the really a terrific, liberating way, that you don't have that burden every day of going that horrible feeling, you know, the car pulls up and you're in the car and you're like, come on out of that car for today's shoot. And you're like, <laughs> fuck, I, I don't have any ideas. There is, that, that does, it's the worst feeling ever because that's the day you show up, you don't have any ideas, the actors all suck and you can't solve it. In my case, that's like every day. But uh, if you, it, it is slightly liberating to view it as Carlos Kleiber, right? To say, show me. Give me your beauty. And that, uh, I think, is the key to direction. So we looked at painters. Uh, we looked at Rousseau for the jungle. And we looked at Claude Lorraine. And we looked for the UK portion. We looked at Corot. We looked at Turner, of course. Um, 
And then the World War I stuff, we looked at the photographs, uh, which are so profoundly upsetting because it's essentially Europe reduced to the moon. I mean, it looks like the moon. Well, I was just given the sign that we unfortunately are done. <laughs> but I would love to well, talk more to you. Thank you so much um, for coming. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.